giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I am also your host, Lindsay Christensen. And with us today is Stefania Millette, CEO and co-founder of EasyCater. Stefania, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You know that we are repeat customers of ThoughtBot. Yeah, maybe you'll be customers again in the future. <laughs> maybe you'll order food using EasyCater. <laughs> yes. I'm pretty I think sure we, have. we do. Yes. You yes. do? Yes. Awesome. That's yes. great. <laughs> Mutually beneficial relationship. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> How big is ThoughtBot? Uh, we just crossed 100 people across the you. six cities. Yeah, you had a really good designer whose name escapes They're all me, great designers. But we tried to hire him. He absolutely <laughs> oh! would not leave. <laughs> he would have told you about it. He was like, no, I'm really enjoying myself. Our general feeling is that we want to be so good that our clients do want do to hire, hire us away yeah. and so good of a company that people don't want to leave. Right. You may or may not know, but like, you know, it's not part of our contract that you can't recruit I, our team. I know. A lot of consulting companies have, have either this. have that in or have right. it so that you have to pay us if you right. do. And we don't have anything like that. If someone wants to leave, we're not going to stop them. From it's leaving. a free country. That's how we feel, too. Mm -hmm. We have the most minimalist, non-disclosure, non-compete. Non you know, I mean, the non-disclosure part is real. Like mm -hmm. that, you really have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. This is our client's information and our business, and it belongs to our clients and to us. But everything after that, the non-compete... There is no non-compete, really. There's, right. There is no non-compete, actually. There literally is no non-compete. There is a non-poach. But it says, you know, if someone approaches you, you can totally hire them mm -hmm. after you leave our company. Because nah. it's a free country. If somebody yeah. wants to leave, more power to them. They should right. go where they're happy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Massachusetts still has a pretty controversial allowance on non-competes that doesn't exist in places like California, for example. I'm not actually sure because we so don't yeah. care because we just don't believe in tying your hands that way. There was a change um, last year for Massachusetts that made it so that you couldn't get someone who was not like sort of a key employee to sign a non-compete agreement without compensating them for it. Okay. Yeah. And so that was the change. There was a push to get rid of non-competes entirely in Massachusetts and like they've done in happened. California and yeah. that hasn't happened, but it was made harder to, to just to have them. Because, you know, the, it's like the famous you know, Starbucks people <laughs> working a counter have non-competes, and that's just, like, not... Is that right at Starbucks? I, that's the that's example people always use, but, you know, I don't know that it's true, but it's I mean, something like I that. I left a company as a junior marketer, and they were contacting the company that I moved to because it was in a similar industry and, like, threatening them. And I'm like, what information do you even think I'm walking out of the building with? No one tells me anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't tell my new company that. Right. But <laughs> That's right. Now, at EasyCater, we tell everybody everything, but we still think it's a free country, and we trust you that you will adhere to the non-disclosure part. Mm -hmm. But if you have become smarter, wiser, more knowledgeable about how to prosecute your job. Well, awesome. Good for you. There used to be a contract, which I think not too many companies actually kept to it, but this kind of unofficial contract that you had lifetime employment. I hear that 50, 70 years ago, there was that kind of a sense in white collar work. I don't buy that, but I think you do owe your employees increased employability. When they leave your company, for whatever reason, they should have learned something and be better able to get a better job. Mm -hmm. If you didn't give them that, what was the contract? You know, right. money's not enough. It's supposed to be 
good for the local economy too because especially if it's in to like, allow people to compete yeah, yeah. So, or to move on to a, to a, on. a similar job especially if it's like a new industry you're in something like i don't know like blockchain or something and you leave a company and want to move to another company it's like silly for you to have to wait five years or something like that right or have to move somewhere else yeah and exactly yeah. and then the talent will just leave and go to somewhere where that yeah. isn't enforced yeah well i don't know what industry is pushing for it to stay I've never understood it. Mm. I never liked them. Is it something that's evolved for you over time, or has that been sort of a way you felt since you started in executive positions? I started my first company in 1997. That was the first time I was a founding CEO. And right then, I was I just threw that out. Mm-hmm. And before that, you know, I worked for General Electric. I mean, you kind of sign what they make you sign. <laughs> I worked for digital equipment when it was a fine, really actually a good company. And it's gone, but it was a pretty nifty company for a while. And I signed whatever they made me sign. Mm -hmm. But I developed my own thesis. And when I finally had complete freedom, I exercised it. And do you think it's made a difference for the companies that you've run? I think it is emblematic of a general attitude of we trust people. We think it's a free country. We think when people don't want to work for us, we support them. Go do something else that makes you happy. When you work for us, we respect what you know, what you're bringing us from before, and we know that at some point you'll walk out the door. Mm-hmm. We respect people, and if you respect people, then this kind of protectionist approach doesn't work. Yeah, It's too limiting on you and on them. Mm-hmm. You guys do that at ThoughtBot. Yes, it's very similar. Thing? Yeah. yeah. Like you said, you don't make it so that someone can't hire a person out from underneath Mm -hmm. you. I figure we have to earn an employee staying with us every day. Yeah. Uh, Just like, honestly, they have to earn staying with us, right? Mm -hmm. They have to deliver each day. Why don't we have to deliver Mm -hmm. each day? Yeah, I doubt many people are staying in their role because of a non-compete anyway. If someone's ready to leave, it's for various reasons, and they're going to leave and figure something out. Yeah. When you have the lawyers prosecuting something, you've already lost. It's just not a good place to be. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I struggled with early on in terms of being a CEO was working so hard to earn, to keep people around every day, but people inevitably leave. And I took that very personally early on, like that I had really failed for what we were trying to do. But like if someone's here five, six, seven years and they just like, that's a win. And even if they're only here two and a half years and we've allowed them to move on in their career and progress, that's still a win. It just took me a little while to get used to that because I had worked personally so hard. You took it personally. Yeah. 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 I think I've spent a lot of my life learning how to separate personal from everything else Mm -hmm. and take as few things personally as I can. That doesn't mean I don't care intensely, but I don't take someone's leaving the company as a rejection of me. I don't, I've been fired twice. I've been laid off twice. I've left a bunch of companies. In no case has it helped me to take it personal. And when I've looked at them really clearly, I've seen like, yeah, it was just the situation at the time made it make sense for me to not be there anymore. And yes, I contributed to being fired, but it was not so much a repudiation of me as a repudiation of me in that situation. And that's a very different message. And Mm -hmm. that's, 
I've gotten better and better at being able to say to somebody, if I'm asking them to leave, to say, it's not you, it's the work. And it's the match between the work you want to deliver and the work we need to have done. And if you do it well, a lot of people hear that and mm-hmm. hear the clarity. And then you have to turn that on yourself, too. If they leave, I always joke about this. I'm always like, we have all these people who do things like fall in love with people who want to move. <laughs> what am I going to do? Say no. <laughs> right? Like, more power to you. Yeah. <laughs> or they want, they just want something different. I get it. More power to you. Yeah. So Easy Cater has grown quite a bit over the last several years. What what does that growth look like in terms of numbers of people? And, and Yeah. I'm very clear on the stages of growth. We signed the term sheet for the round of funding that just closed where we got the one and a quarter billion dollar valuation. We signed that term sheet literally on a Saturday morning. I was sitting in my house on a Saturday morning. I signed the term sheet because the guy I was negotiating with, whatever, we both were working on a Saturday. And I was on the phone and I was texting to two guys at the office to make sure that they agreed with the decision that we made and the final decision it was done. And then I'm typing really quick so that I'm updating the document and then I electronically sign it and I send it off for him to electronically sign. And I jump up like, I'm going to go wash the dishes or something. I mean, it's Saturday, right? And, <laughs> and my husband is like, wait, you're sitting at the same kitchen table in the same kitchen, in the same house where you started this thing with Briscoe Rogers, your co-founder. Think about that for a second. I sort of went, oh, yeah, that's freaking awesome. (laughs) And I went to the office and I told our 675 employees that this was where we were at. I mean, I remember it when it was Briscoe and me in my house because his house was in Back Bay and I had a driveway. You had to, like, back in to double park in front of his apartment. <laughs> so I said, you're coming to my house. Also, I have a reverse commute. For, I mean, for him to come to me would have been a reverse commute. So I remember that. And now we're at 670, I think, six, actually, people. And we've done a lot to keep it feeling as dynamic and as entrepreneurial as we can. A very wise HR professional said to me, Culture is entirely determined by how information is shared and how decisions are made. You can make many, many choices of how to share information or what information to share, the mechanisms, the extent of it. You can make many choices about how local or top-heavy or wherever the decisions are being made. Those choices determine your culture. And we have tried to keep the choices the same, even as we're at 676 people. We share a huge amount of information with everybody. Of course, you don't hear as much as you did when there were 10 of us in one room. But there's very few things you can't hear. You are not always included in every conversation simply because of the parameters of space and time, but you are very seldom excluded from any conversation. And we publish all kinds of information. We use Periscope, love Periscope. We use Periscope, we have dashboards all over the place. And everybody can see them. We have 400 or 500 of the 676 people have active licenses to use Periscope. And everybody else can. They just have chosen not to, but they can. Everybody can. And the decisions get made as close to the work as possible. So I think a lot of people would say that it's still pretty entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. It's still a very dynamic place. 
Did you bake that into your company values? Yeah. Or formalize anything around communication or um, transparency, how things get shared? I was at a forum of a group of CEOs of high-growth marketplaces, and one of the CEOs said, you know, we created these stickers. We had a sheet of stickers that had a dozen values on them. I thought that was cool. I took one of the stickers, I brought it home, one of the sheets, I brought it home and said, hey, we should have one of these. We created 12 values on a sticker, on, on this sheet of stickers. It took us about an hour and a half because we talk about this a lot. So it wasn't that hard to digest it down to a dozen. One of them was simplify, simplify, simplify. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and before we committed to actually printing them on stickers, we sent them out to the whole company and said, everybody noodle with these, noodle on them, live with them, see what you think. And in a month, we'll all come back together and we'll decide what to do. So simplify, simplify, simplify caused us to create only nine <laughs> instead of 12. <laughs> and simplify, simplify, simplify was taken off the list because we figured we just do that. We're just going to do that. And anybody who knows the story remembers that's what happened. One of them is trust in transparency. Another one is own it, figure it out. You can't do that if decisions aren't in your hands. Another one is aim higher, make it better. You can't do that unless you have the authority and the responsibility to do something. So it's baked in certainly in that way. Now we're gonna take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. PricingWire has helped more than 1,000 software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what they're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, PricingWire delivers easy-to-understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, PricingWire can help. Just go to pricingwire.com and book a strategy session today. Whether you need to organize your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you, PricingWire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. At what point did you actually create those values that of when you said, okay, we're going to write these down. What point in the history of Easy Cater did that happen? So first of all, you, you were founded in 2007, right? Founded when you in 2007. We figured out when we looked backward at our history that we spent the first five years wandering in the desert, figuring out a whole bunch of things. And if we were not, Briscoe and I were not deeply stubborn people, we would have probably given up. But at the end of about five years, in, in the sixth year, we started to really get it. And we stopped the bootstrap thing, and we started bringing in some more money, and things took off. Mm -hmm. We have the classic true hockey stick. You know, you kind of crawl along the blade of the hockey stick, which is slightly angled up, and you kind of crawl along that and crawl along that. And then finally, we understood what we were building. We understood how to scale it, and we brought in money to scale it. Capital really helps when you're not a contracting business. And that's when we shot up the stick of the hockey stick. So we were growing very quickly in 2012, 13, 14. Spring of 2015, we brought in the first big money. 13 million bucks seemed like a huge amount. We just raised 150 right. <laughs> in one go. But at the time, 13 million was a crazy amount of money. 
And that's when we really took off. And it was probably spring or summer of 16 that we articulated those values to mm-hmm. the extent that we immortalized them on, on stickers. Right. But do you, are you comfortable with the fact that you didn't sort of say, like, these are the company values and write them down on day one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Companies are a work in progress all the time. We still are. We look at the sheet every once in a while and say, should we change that? And then we argue about one of them. There's one we always argue about, which is move fast and break things. Mm. And I'm always saying, how about fail fast? I mean, I don't want anybody to think that we want them to break things, Mm -hmm. which, of course, no one does because we're all good people. But that's the one we argue about. Then once in a while, somebody says, we could add this. And we could, except the central thesis, our central value is be insanely helpful. And many of our new employees look at the sheet and say, well, all the parts about try it and track it, move fast and break things, um, own it, figure it out, trust and transparency. Lots of companies say that. After they've been with us a while, they say, we are more transparent than any company I've ever worked for. But they also say, be insanely helpful. That's different. That really makes us stand out. Mm. And so it turns out that many of the suggestions that people give us of, you know, we could add this, After we talk about it, we realize that's kind of subsumed in be insanely helpful. Mm -hmm. We joke sometimes about if we were going to simplify this further, either try it and track it or own it, figure it out. Go to this idea of just keep iterating, keep improving. Be insanely helpful. Keep iterating and improving. And don't be an asshole. And that kind of sums it all up. Mm -hmm. Maybe except for the don't be an asshole one. It's relatively unique, like people say. Like even trust and transparency, it's important. It really defines how you work, but it's one of ours. Exactly. (laughs) It's trust. But every once in a while, we say something in a company meeting or just in the hallway where somebody says, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No one's ever done that before in any company I ever worked for. You know, people are pretty surprised. So the fact that we didn't write it down earlier was not an issue because of the reason why we were able to write them down in an hour and a half. We were living that way. Mm -hmm. We did not have to go out and create a culture. We did not create a set of values that we were saying, now let's morph the company over to that. We simply encapsulated what we were already doing. And that's because I am a systems thinker. I am a recovering programmer. I was started out as a programmer and have never left my roots of thinking in systems thinking as an engineer. I mean, I'm a trained engineer. And so when we've done something, I've always said, well, wait, doesn't that set a precedent? Wait, we need a principle. We operate by principles. So we did that without having written them down. Do you guys write them down? We write them down now, but we actually... figured it out as you went along. We figured it out as as we went along. One thing we did write down was... We wrote down a list of principles, like, mm-hmm. and, but they were things like they were practices, like development or design practices yeah. that we felt were important and that defined us early on. Yeah. And then several years after that, especially as those started to fade in terms of like, we either won, if something was controversial, it was yeah. like it became industry norm. And we sort of won and said, well, what was the value that drove us to that practice or principle in the first place? And then we started to rearticulate the practices as yeah. values. The driving mm-hmm. theme behind the practice yeah. is the value, yeah. the driving force behind mm-hmm. the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Since we have more different departments than you do, mm-hmm. since we offer a service that isn't our people, yeah. we would have struggled to write down all these different practices. It would have been a much longer yes. list. Yeah. 
So we just went straight to the principles that inform our actions. Mm -hmm. Which is a good point. We should talk about what EasyCater does. Oh, that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, what, what is EasyCater? We are the world's largest marketplace for finding food for a business meeting anywhere in the United States. And now, internationally as well, we're now in France, across the whole country of France. More countries will follow. So if you have a business meeting of any kind that you need, well, not 2,000 person sales kickoffs that go for three days, but if you have a meeting in your office for which you need food, you come to our website, you enter an address anywhere in the US and now anywhere in France, and we will show you restaurants and caterers that will deliver there. We show you the full menus. We show you all the fees you might have to pay that are all the restaurant's fees, not ours. It's free. We do not add any fees to it. And you can place your order. And once you've placed it, it becomes our problem, not yours. So we do all the work to make sure that order is accepted by the restaurant, to make sure the order gets fulfilled fully and to do any kind of back end, all the accounting, make sure you get charged correctly, make sure you have all the information you need for your receipt, for your expense reports, make sure the restaurants are happy. And if there's ever a problem, we troubleshoot for you. And it's all free. You mentioned you were spent five years wandering in the desert. Yeah. What was going on during that time? Did you start from a place of food and catering or was We started it? to build the service that we are delivering today. We started out saying we want to help people find food for business meetings. And we knew from the start that what was really important was that we be national so that our initial audience, which was salespeople, would be able to use us no matter where in their territory they need food. I did not know this when we started this company, but we understood from the people who were asking us for this help that like the room that we're in, all of the components of this room, the walls, the ceilings, the cement that was poured for the floor, the rug, everything here gets manufactured by somebody and then has to be specified by an architect when the architect is designing the building or the layout of the interior of the building. And so the manufacturers of all the stuff that comprises a building call on architects and try to get the architects to spec that manufacturer's products in their design. It turns out that nowadays it's very hard to get an architect to go out to lunch with you so you can spend time educating them about your product so they will know when is best to spec your product versus somebody else's. The way you get their time is you bring in food for the entire office. I had no idea you had to feed an entire office to talk to one decision maker. There's a whole bunch of industries where that's the case. So we knew that to help salespeople, we needed to be national. And we didn't know that there are many other cases where national reach matters. Like you are a big retail chain, you have stores in many, many states, and on Black Friday, your people literally don't have time to get out of the store, wait in line with everybody else at the mall, get themselves something to eat, and get back in to work the store again on Black Friday. So you're helping your people if you send them food into the store on Black Friday. But somebody at headquarters will be doing this for 400 stores across the United States. They would like one website that will help them do that everywhere. There's a lot of use cases where geographical reach matters. And so from the start, initially because of salespeople, but afterward for all these other cases, we said we had to be national. And it took us a while to figure out how to do that. When you're building a two-sided marketplace, you've got the supply side, 
which in our case is restaurants. And then you've got the demand side, which is in our case, the people, the business professionals that are buying food, catering for meetings, which it's a chicken and egg problem. Which do you have to sign up more of first? And how do you drive one side to the other side? And we were struggling at one point it wasn't going fast enough. We were signing up restaurants and then finding customers and driving the customers to the restaurants. And then the customers would say, we would like more restaurants. And then we would sign up those restaurants and then we would find more customers. And it was the chicken and the egg and the chicken and the egg and back and forth. And we were getting discouraged. And I said, I'm going to do some research. Like MasterCard, I think, was one of the first. Like really, how did MasterCard get started? Did we, merchants would accept these pieces of plastic. And you'd have to be willing to carry a piece of plastic into a store, and then you'd discover the merchant says, I don't know what to do with this piece of plastic. So I looked up a history of MasterCard, and it said that it only took them 15 years to get started. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking, I'm going to be dead in 15 years. (laughs) There's no way I'm doing this. (laughs) So it took quite some work to understand how to do it, but we did figure out how to be national. And for anybody who is trying to build a two-sided marketplace, here's my advice. Build the supply first, drive a small number of customers to them, and when those customers are rapidly loyal, when they scream so loudly that they can be heard anywhere, if you take that service away, then you have a business. So start with the supply. The customers will find you, or you can easily drive a few customers there, and if they go, this is fantastic, and they become rapidly loyal, then you have a chance for a two-sided marketplace to be successful. So we figured that out. It took us years. And then we figured out how to sign up national coverage of restaurants. And once we did that, we were off to the races. But that took us a while. All the other people who have tried this have not figured out how to do it. They're all regional. We figured it out. I assume you don't want to say what it was. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to kill you. (laughs) It was legal, it was ethical, and it was moral. (laughs) But it was very clever, Mm -hmm. and no one else seems to have figured it out. (laughs) Chad, I'm curious, if we have a prospective client who comes to us and says, I have an idea for a marketplace, are there a set of questions you have in mind for them? Well, so the biggest thing is if someone said, we have a marketplace and it has to be national. Yeah. Be like, uh, well, you're going to fail. Like, like, that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> almost all the recommendations are find an area where you can focus on to build up both sides and scale it. And then when you figure that out, then look beyond that area. Yeah. I'm not saying that you have to be national. I'm right, saying right, build you, up supply. Right, right. Start with the right. supply. So I would recommend that you tell your clients mm-hmm. if someone approaches you, like Lindsay's saying, Start with the supply. Right. But whether it is appropriate or optimal for a business to start with that local or whether it's important to be national, that depends on the business. Mm -hmm. We certainly did start local, which helped us iron out a lot of kinks so that when we figured out how to be national, it didn't turn into disaster. (laughs) It didn't turn into chaos. So perhaps that is the wisest approach for everybody. Mm -hmm. The other thing that can be a factor is whether you actually know the industry or not. So what was your experience or your founder's experience with the actual industry? Well, I had come out of industry where I had ordered food. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have it as a part of my job, Mm -hmm. but I had ordered food. So I knew the buyer side, honestly, better than the restaurant side. But I'm a logistics buff Mm -hmm. and I'm an operations buff. And I pretty rapidly learned how restaurants 
view catering and how they can fit catering into their operation because it's a very different workflow from the normal flow of a restaurant where you walk in, sit down, order food, eat it, and leave. Very different to mm-hmm. walk into that little tiny kitchen that they have and say, can I have 25 things on one tray? That is a big deal. So I learned that pretty fast. What inspired you to learn that? What, what inspired you to say, this is the problem I want to yeah. solve? In our last company, my co-founder and I have worked in three different companies together. And in the last one, we were helping pharma reps get in front of doctors. They're one of the industries where in order to spend time with the doctor so you can educate the doctor on the efficacy of your drug and on the appropriate usage of your drug, you need to bring in lunch because the doctor goes flying through the break room or wherever the lunch is, and you get literally 90 seconds to explain to them what's going on, what's valuable about your drug. And so we were helping the last mile problem with pharma reps, helping them get in front of doctors in ways that made sense for everybody. And they kept telling us, can you make the food appear for these meetings? I mean, in 2004, I remember very clearly the time when someone said to me on the phone, a farmer said to me on the phone, can you make the food appear for this meeting? It's so great you got me the lunch slot. That's when I would probably get 90 seconds with the doctor instead of 30, which is what I can usually get while they're flying by me in the hall. And I said, don't you take the decision maker out to lunch? Because I did a lot of high-tech sales in my lifetime. And the guy practically reached through the phone and patted me on the head. He said, that's not how this goes. We don't like it but this is the way we have to do it. I can tell you this talk about whether it's an inappropriate behavior for pharma reps to be bringing lunch to doctors. I have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of orders placed by pharma reps, well, millions at this point, of orders placed by pharma reps for delivery to doctor's offices. The average is like $11 per head, and that includes the main dish, the sandwich or whatever it is, and the chips and the drink and the the side and the tax and the tip and the delivery. This is not inappropriate behavior. (laughs) There's no bribing going on here. So we had heard about it from these farmer reps who just said, help me make the food appear for my business meetings. And we realized that that was probably a better business than the one that we were building. We ran out of cash in the one we were building, too. We followed the Zoom splat model. We were running as fast as we could, and then we splatted against a wall. (laughs) So we shut that thing down, and we started this one up because we thought we could bootstrap this. Mm -hmm. And we did bootstrap it for years. $320 million of venture funding later, I'm here to tell you that bootstrapping doesn't always do it. (laughs) Do you wish that you had just not bootstrapped so long or, or not started bootstrapped in the first place? In retrospect? I don't know. Sometimes I say to Briscoe, I think we lost at least a year. If we had brought money in sooner, wouldn't we have been able to go faster? But then we look at the secular tailwinds that have been helping us. We look at the shifting dynamic in the industry, the restaurants that have gotten into catering, the fact that lots more people use food in support of business meetings than did back in the day. I'm older than than a bunch of people in this industry, and I'll tell you, No one ever fed us during a meeting, ever. No one brought lunch in. And so I think we might have been too much ahead of the market if we had taken money in too early and tried to go faster. And you might have splatted. We might have splatted. I don't know. You don't get to run the clock both ways. Mm -hmm. I know that I don't walk around with a ton of regret, like rats, we should have done this quicker. I don't have that. Restaurants seem to have been slower to adopt technology to help with 
operations or other kind of business areas. Is that accurate? Does that ring true with what you've seen? Uh, They are slower than some industries, that's true. There's a lot of reasons for that, one of which is there is no one in a restaurant who's sitting at a computer. It's basically no one in a restaurant who's sitting. You work in a restaurant, you are running around constantly. And if you add catering into that, you are running around outside of the restaurant in addition to racing around inside your restaurant. So it's hard to figure how to fit technology in you have a perishable product, which, how do you track, you know, what is, it's not like you're manufacturing a widget. You've got this perishable stuff. You have steam and boiling oil and <laughs> fish and all kinds of things that make it really hard to have a computer in the workplace anywhere. Technology has gotten better and better at it being smaller, fitting into more locations, being ruggedized in ways that make it possible for them to survive in a hostile environment like inside a restaurant. That's really hostile to technology. So I think technology has failed restaurants more than the other way around. But it's starting to close the gap. As the technology improves and as the delivery mechanism, the hardware improves, it's easier for a restaurant to take it on. Is there tension as far as like product roadmap between the two sides of the market? And how do you negotiate that? (laughs) Yeah, there's tension within each side of the marketplace because we never have enough programmers, (laughs) which is why we have used ThoughtBot people Mm -hmm. (laughs) at various times. Thank you for that. Yes. I would not say there's more tension particularly between one side and the other. There's just never enough programmers. We are highly technology enabled. I said before, I'm a recovering programmer. My co-founder, Briscoe Rogers, is proudly not in recovery. He's a programmer. We are systems thinkers. We've never seen a thing that you couldn't automate. Like, wait, it's happened more than three times. I think it's time to create a software solution for this, if not a hardware solution for this. Let's go. I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to grow at the crazy pace that we have. And it's still a fairly calm and sane place. And people can go home at night. They really do. They go home at night. We haven't burned anybody out, and we've been more than doubling. This is our eighth year of more than doubling. Wow. Yeah. The hockey stick. We climbed that stick. That's a seriously steep curve, but it's it's a pretty curve. <laughs> well, yeah, now you're the fabled unicorn. We are. Someone sent me a, a sign that says, always be yourself, unless you can be a unicorn. If you can be a <laughs> unicorn, always be a unicorn. <laughs> So you've talked a lot about scaling, and you mentioned that you're the largest in the U.S. Yeah. And you've just expanded to 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 France, France, all of France. So is most of your growth ahead of you outside of the U.S.? No. There's so much growth still left in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We are bigger than everybody else put together. Mm -hmm. But even so, we're still single-digit percentage of the entire marketplace. Mm -hmm. There's $24 billion of business catering, $36 billion of social catering, which we now have figured out a low enough CAC, customer acquisition cost, that we can open the doors to the social catering. And so there's $60 billion in the U.S. We're a single-digit percentage of that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of room there. And then Europe, Europe is more fragmented. Of course, in every country, you've got different taxes and different language. Fortunately, across the EU, you don't have a different currency, but you do have taxes and language to deal with and different 
cultural mores around how you use food in business or how you use food in social settings. So we're learning that country by country. Mm-hmm. It means it's a little slower to grow in Europe, in the Union anyway. But there's other countries. There's lots of world out there. Yeah, there's lots of world out there's there. So how do you balance amount. that growth? If you have the, all I the know. potential in the U.S. and you could keep on growing, and then you have the hard work of growing internationally, how are you balancing that? We're pretty good at doing a lot of things in parallel. Mm-hmm. Because we share information so broadly and because we push decisions down, we have relatively few bottlenecks. You hire good people and say, take that hill. <laughs> you hire other good people and say, that hill. You hire more good people and say, that hill. Mm-hmm. And then you got three hills you're going after. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the process. Yes, at some point you run out of cash to fund all these opportunities. But we run at something called EBITDA minus acquisition cost positive. We mm-hmm. learned this from our first big investor. Essentially, EBITDA is essentially the profit of the business, right? We run to where EBITDA minus the cost of acquiring customers is at least break even. It's actually slightly positive. It took us till 2017 to get there. But in 17, 18, and uh, in 19, we're on track for that. When that is positive, then you can run at break-even or slightly profitable forever. And you use your money that's making you go unprofitable to acquire customers. So the money that you're using is the amount of gas you're, well, it's how hard you're pressing down on the gas pedal. How hot do we run this engine? We have a couple other guardrails that we use to determine just how hot we should be, but the bottom line is EBITDA minus acquisition cost has to be positive. Mm So if we can expand in France, expand in on the moon, expand in U.S., and still keep EBITDA minus acquisition cost positive, then we're willing to try mm-hmm. it, as long as we meet a couple of other guardrails that when we have. When you say acquisition cost, is that cost to acquire, uh, to acquire restaurants customers. and consumers no, or just, just consumers? we're just using it just for the customers. Mm-hmm. So all the costs to acquire restaurants, and we're adding you know a couple thousand restaurants a month, all the costs to acquire restaurants, we're folding that into the core business. So okay. this is a very, very conservative way mm-hmm. to look at our numbers. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned before that there's no charge to the person using Easy Cater. Yeah. So I assume that you're making revenue yeah. by charging the restaurants. Yeah, the restaurants give us essentially a marketing fee. Mm-hmm. The restaurants are pretty happy with what we give them. They get a lot of business. and. I just heard this at the the conference that we ran where we pulled together restaurants. This was not an you know, easy cater user conference. This was an industry conference talking about catering because mm-hmm. catering is really different from the retail flow in a restaurant and from the retail business and from the retail profitability in a restaurant. It's a very different thing. So we pulled together this big conference, which had many brands there, many restaurants that are not on our marketplace, as well as many that are. And we spent three days talking about catering. And one of the things that we heard a couple of times is, you guys are different. A lot of the marketplaces on the retail side, you know, the on-demand, I'm buying food for dinner, Mm -hmm. I want it to be there when I get home, show up as fast as you can. They said, those guys, they steal our customers, and then they sell them back to us. But your business, you are giving us incremental business. We've heard this many, many times. So that's one important way in which our marketplace is different. Mm -hmm. That means the restaurants are willing to pay us because they're Mm -hmm. getting new business. Mm -hmm. It makes it easier for them to pay us. I've also heard this anecdotally that 
Easy Cater's pleasant to use and has good customer service. And it seems like there's a strong culture around customer value and customer experience. Is that something you talk about a lot? Well, that's the be insanely helpful. Mm-hmm. And we believe that be insanely helpful means not only to the customer who's buying the food, but also to the restaurant, the supplier who's creating the food, because they are customers of ours as well. As It also means we now have the capacity where we work with courier companies that will provide delivery to the restaurants if the restaurants themselves are out of delivery bandwidth. And we are insanely helpful to the courier partners. We're insanely helpful to each other. So it's not like we treat customers differently from the way we try to treat everybody. Be insanely helpful means make the problem yours. Anticipate what's going to happen next. Never leave people wondering, well, okay, you did that, but now what? You, you know, you help me with that one thing. Think ahead and then help me with what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next. Make the problem go away completely or answer my question completely or be so nice to me that there's no issue anymore. That's all part of don't waste my time. Don't make mistakes. Does that result in customer referrals? We have a huge amount of word of mouth. We have many years of history now because we've been doing this since 2007. We've been doing this really at scale since 2012 or 13. And all the data we have says that if we decided not to spend on customer acquisition costs to where we go negative, if we decided to run at break even or positive, we would still grow 30% a year through referrals. Wow. Yeah, wow. That says something. (laughs) It says something. Is there any pressure to do that then? (laughs) Uh, No. Our investors are happy with the guardrails we've put in place Mm -hmm. and and with us running the engine as hot as we want to run it Mm -hmm. within the confines of these guardrails. And the confines of the guardrails are such that we'll double. Mm -hmm. And the investors are like, that seems good. Go right ahead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No one's stopping us. Now, we talk about going public in a couple of years, so we say we're growing too fast to go public, because <laughs> then the, if you, at some point you do slow down. I mean, we keep saying someday we oh, have to I slow down, but saying, so yeah. far we haven't been slowing mm-hmm. down, but at some point you'd think we would have to, right? and you don't want to go public and then start slowing down. Right. You have to kind of slow down and then go public, mm-hmm. because otherwise everybody feels misled or disappointed or something. <laughs> It's funny. I've always heard that you should not go public until you're very predictable. I'm also learning now you shouldn't go public until you're very predictable and fairly slow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Though 30% growth, the market would be so happy with that. So maybe we could decide to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're more ambitious. So the company's been around since 2007, and you're approaching 700 employees. Do you still consider the company a startup? Yeah. For one thing, I'm a little out of date on my calculation, but I suspect if we took the number of employees that we had back when we had, you know, much less revenue, if you look, if you look like at our 2012 numbers, our bookings, our revenue, and our headcount, we would have to have something like 12,000 employees at this point. <laughs> so the fact that we're doing it all with under 700 says something about the scrappiness and the ability to execute using technology and using very clever people. And the fact that information is still distributed as broadly, that decisions are still made as low down in the organization as they were before, I think that dynamism, those are the things that define startup. 
So yeah, I still call us a startup. We're a 12-year-old 700-person startup. (laughs) In the face of all that growth and in the face of everything you accomplished, is there something that you see out there and say, that's our next challenge or that's what we're working on now and the next hurdle we have to overcome? There are many more use cases for our customers that we want to be able to address as well as we address the core use cases that we built the company for. That's exciting and interesting for us. When we got the one and a quarter billion dollar valuation, we literally within seconds, we were like, so how long to add another zero? We said in 2014, we're going to get to a billion in 2019. And we got there in February, which means we have a lot of year left. What are we going to do with it? (laughs) So now we think in the three to five year range, add another zero. We actually said three, but I'm not saying that in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we won't tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. No, no <laughs> one listens figured. to this anyway. No one's gonna like, yeah. <laughs> Just don't tell our investors. <laughs> They've already heard this story, but they promised not to hold us to it. So more use cases, more different customer types, more countries, more zeros. You're going to double the team again? Sure. But we're not going to, if we did it linearly, you know, at some point we'd have 100,000 employees and we're not going to be that big. And people, we're always going to be lean and mean and use technology and very clever brains. Well, thank you for stopping by our studio to talk to us in person. Great to be here. We certainly wish you all the best and thanks for sharing with us. Thank you. I wish you guys the best as well. Send me more programmers. (laughs) We will. Yeah, thanks for coming by. You got it. Thanks. So if people want to find out more about Easy Cater or get in touch, where's the best place for them the to do that? The letter E, the letter Z, and the word cater, mm-hmm. .com. And are you hiring? We are hiring constantly. We have the best recruiting team. I'm so proud of our recruiting team. They have done beyond any recruiting team I've worked with has been able to do in terms of the volume and the quality of the people that we bring in. Our turnover is crazy low both the voluntary and even the involuntary. I mean, we just hire well. Our recruiting team is amazing. And our screening process is pretty good, clearly. So Yeah, you seem to be doing some things right over there. We do. We execute well. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. And you can find me on Twitter at lindsay3d. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. And thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.